This is the preaching podcast from Keystone Church and Pastor Josh Cox. To find out more about Keystone, visit keystonerdu.church. We hope you enjoy today's message. Today we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 5 if you have your Bibles. If not, it'll be on the screen. But it simply says this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Man, if I can have the mind of one person, let it be Christ. If I can have the mind of one person, don't let it be the greatest inventor that you know, the, the, the richest man that you know. If I can have the mind of one person, let it be the mind of Christ. Verse 6, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, and we'll talk a little bit about that, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. This is an extremely important passage of Scripture. Certainly every line that is written in Scripture is profitable, the Bible tells us. But there are certain passages of Scripture that make theological claims that will stand the test of time. And let me just say this, theology matters. It matters that we understand what the Bible says. It matters in how we defend our faith to those that would question us. It matters in how we live properly as Christians. We need to understand what the Bible says. And one of the major passages in Scripture is right here, tucked away in Philippians chapter 2. The the entire thought flows from verse 5 all the way to verse 11, but we're going to stay in the first portion today due to our, our time. The entire passage through verse 11 has been described by many theologians and writers as a song that was written about Christ for the purpose of worship and adoration. It's kind of like a small psalm inserted into the book of Philippians. And how many of you understand, we sang this morning, man, Praise the King. We sang about His grace is enough. We sang because He lives. We sing songs of worship and adoration. And that's, that's what we do as a church. But it's very important that those songs are also theologically correct. Does that make sense? We don't want to sing songs that don't line up with Scripture. And so here is a song that is Scripture, obviously, so it lines up with Scripture. But that is what this has been heralded as. And while there are certainly examples that we're going to see in these verses that we ought to follow after, we do not want to miss the purpose, which is to highlight the theological truths of Christ himself. Understand that in Scripture. And I'll I'll make this statement. The Bible is not simply a how-to manual. Even though there are a lot of how-to manual portions of Scripture in the Bible. The Bible is not simply a how-to manual. The Bible is a theological book that teaches us about Jesus. At the end of the day, that is what the Bible is doing. So whether it's in the book of Psalms or whether it's in the Old Testament somewhere else or or whether it's in the Gospels or whether it's in Paul's letters to the churches, the central theme of, of Scripture is to teach us about Jesus. And we cannot lose that. This morning, I hope we learn the mind of Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, teach us your word this morning. God, I pray that we would understand your mind. God, if there's one person's mind, I want to understand it's yours. 
There's one person's heart I want. It's yours. And God, I pray that you would illuminate that in in the verses of Scripture that we read and learn about this morning. God, we love you today. We thank you for giving us your word. May it be magnified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 5, number 1. We'll see this morning the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Other versions of the Bible highlight the second part of that verse by saying, let this mind be in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You've been given this mind. This passage seems to illustrate the twofold truth, the theological truth of our position in Christ. Hey, you have been saved and you have been given the mind of Christ. That is a theological truth, but also the practical truth of our responsibility to hey, think like Christ. Hey, put on this mind. Think like him in your everyday dealings. There's a theological truth of our position in Christ, but there's a practical truth of our responsibility to emulate him. And I love how those truths work together. Basically, in a nutshell, we could say this, because of your standing in Christ, because of what Jesus did for you, because of the gospel this morning, emulate him in the way you think. Hey, because of your position in Christ, because of what he's done for you, because of the mind he's given you, think like him. Think like him. There are certain commands in the Bible that uh, are pretty cut and dry and obvious to us. This is one of those commands that's tough. How many of you understand sometimes, uh, not even sometimes, most of the time, we are very concerned about what we do. You ever thought about saying something? And then you didn't say it. Let's be honest. Okay, this is me. You ever thought about saying something? You know it's not right. But you thought about saying it. You didn't say it. And what do you do to yourself? You like high five yourself on the inside. Like, yes. Like, I thought about saying that. I didn't say it. Good job, Josh. When, when scripture commands us to have the mind of Christ. Oh, that I could get to the point in my Christian life where I thought properly. Not just spoke properly, but thought properly. Oh, that I could have the mind of Christ when I'm driving down the interstate, not going that fast, but in the left lane, and I come up behind a car with no one in front of them, and they're going the speed limit or under, in the left lane, and clueless about what's going on around them. Oh, at that point in my Christian life, if I could have the mind of Christ. Come on. The mind of Christ. You know, I think we're all guilty of that. I think we're all guilty of justifying our thoughts because they never played themselves out in actions. And that's a dangerous place to be. There are, there are sexual predators behind bars today who got comfortable with their mind not turning into action until it did. Until it did. Hey, there are murderers today on death row who got comfortable thinking certain thoughts and anger inside and, and wrath inside 
but they never acted upon it until they did. We do not, as Christians, need to get comfortable with a mind out of whack as long as our actions are okay. At the core of who we are, let this mind be in you, the mind of Christ. As a church family, may let, the, let us be a, a church community that is mindful of Christ and His way of thinking and His way of living and His manner of life. The Christ-like mind thinks differently than the minds of this world and the minds of our culture. A worldly mind will judge someone based upon how they look. They'll judge based on the exterior, but the mind of Christ looks on the heart. The worldly mind is always out for itself. How can it climb the ladder? But the mind of Christ is always out for others. This worldly mind that we have will justify our sin, but the mind of Christ will call sin what it is and condemn it. By the way, lest you be fooled by judgment-free, and we're a judgment-free church, lest you be fooled by grace, we're a grace-filled church, and you come here, you're going to experience that, you're going to know that as you interact with our people. Man, we don't care your background, what's going on, what you look like, how much money you make, where you're from, when you got saved, if you know the church songs, if, we don't care. But at the end of the day, let it be known that this book, there is sin. And the Bible calls sin, sin. And when there's sin in my life as a pastor, I need to acknowledge it. When there's sin in your life as a church member, you acknowledge it. That's what we do. The mind of Christ doesn't justify sin. The mind of Christ will call sin for what it is. A worldly mind is all about that money. But the mind of Christ understands that you cannot serve God and money. As a church family, may we seek the mind of Christ because a Christ-like mind thinks radically different than the mind that this world has trained us to use. Because of our standing in Christ, we are to emulate His mind, His attitude, His spirit, His heart. To think like someone. To think like someone. I'm not sure how many of you are like this with your spouse, but sometimes you already know what they're thinking. Whether good or bad, whether positive or negative, you already know what they're thinking. I don't know if you've ever been there with your spouse, but maybe you're in, not that any of you would ever have an argument, but maybe you're in a disagreement and, uh, and you say something and you know, like what, you know exactly what they're about to say back. You can almost say it for them. Or as, the, um, as we're learning theology here in the, in the great uh, book Frozen, the Bible book Frozen, you finish each, each other's sandwiches. Come on, sandwiches. Not sentences. You haven't been reading your Bible. Just kidding. But uh, everybody knows that. I don't know what version of Frozen you've been reading. I'm just kidding. But I don't know if you You know what it takes, though, to be able to think like someone? A lot of time with them. It takes spending time together. It takes studying them. It takes observing how they act and react during certain situations. If I'm going to think, I think of our, of our, our band, and man, they do a great job, man. They, they do an awesome job. But sometimes they'll go off script. They'll kind of, if a song's going well, hey, we'll do something again. Or they'll, 
And you know what? It's cool seeing. It's cool seeing the band kind of flow together and like, okay, we're going to speed it up here. We're going to bring it down here. We're going to bring it back up here. And seeing that happen, well, you know, that comes over time as they're able to work together and practice together and play together. You get that feel. On a basketball team, a point guard knows that he's going to jab step this way and fake that pass and that, that guy's going to cut back door. And he knows before that guy makes that cut, he's going to go ahead and make that pass. He knows that his man's going to do that. You know why? He knows their mind. You know why? Because they've spent time together. They've practiced together. He's watched him play. He understands. I don't usually address first-time guests in the service. In fact, my father was here one time, and I didn't address him first time in the service. But this calls for a, a great sports illustration. My Little League baseball coach is with, with today, Vinny. And, man, and that, that's, a cool, that's a cool coach name, Vinny, right? Pizza and baseball, right? That's it, man. Uh, but, uh, but, but Vinny, so I played Little League baseball. And it's that, it's that mind that a, a catcher and a pitcher have together. Hey, it, it's when, you know, you see a pitcher come up and he's looking for a sign. And for me, I watch Major League Baseball. I've got relatives that, I've got a, a cousin that plays in, the major, in Major League Baseball right now. And you watch their games and every time I see a pitcher shaking off the catcher, shaking off the catcher, shaking off, that frustrates me. Because I'm like, they're, they're not on the same page. And a lot of times you'll see, what do you'll see? you see the catcher call time, walk out there, and they'll have a conversation. What I love seeing is when a pitcher gets up there, the sign comes, it's just like a quick nod. He knows, the catcher knows what's coming. He knows what's coming. They are on the same page. In fact, some pitchers have such good camaraderie with certain catchers that that catcher comes in the game just to catch that pitcher. You know why? Because they know each other so well. So let me ask you this in that illustration. How well do you know the mind of Christ? How well do you know the mind of Christ? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have you studied him? Do you know him? How does he act and react in situations? To know the mind of Christ, we must be fascinated by Christ. To know the mind of Christ, we must be fascinated by him. And you say, Joshua, what does that mean, man? I'm, I'm like... I don't really understand. That means that we are always constantly looking for how would Christ deal with a situation? Or we're opening up our Bibles, shocker, and we're reading it. And we're saying, how did Christ react in this situation? Hey, we're in a situation that makes us uncomfortable. Hey, how did Christ react to the woman at the well? She was a promiscuous woman. She was by herself. There was a lot going on here. How did Christ deal with her? How do you want the mind of Christ? Let's read his word and let's study. Hey, when Christ was around the Pharisees in the church who were legalistic and who were trying to hold people to higher standards than what the Bible was holding them to, how did Christ interact with them? To have the mind of Christ. We must be fascinated by Christ. So this question of how do we know the mind of Christ or what does the mind of Christ look like? I think it naturally leads into our second point this morning, and that is simply this, the humility of Christ. If we want to know the mind of Christ, I think we have to take an honest look at the humility of Christ. And we don't have the time today to theologically break down verses 6 through 8. But this is the Jesus that we serve, who being in the form of God, by the way, that word form does not mean just like being like God, being God. 
He was in the form of God. Being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Let's think about that. Different versions say different things. Let's think about that. What that basically tells us this is this. Not only was he God, but he was confident in that. He knew that. There's no other person that could say that, that wouldn't think it robbery to be equal with God. They just use, I know it's King James terminology. We're, we're going to fast forward a, a couple hundred years, a few hundred years here, and let's talk in today's vernacular. Nobody else could say that it's not robbery to be equal with God. If you said it's not robbery for you to be equal with God, you would be claiming to be God. Okay? If you're like, oh, no big deal. I'm God. All right? Uh, we would all consider it robbery to be equal with God because we know we're not God. Jesus Christ thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Uh, th that, is, that is simply what this verse states. But, verse 7, so Jesus was God and he knew it. He was confident in that. Verse 7 says, but he made himself of no reputation and he took upon him the form of a prince. No, the form of a boss, no, the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of God, no, he was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. What is the key attribute and the character and the mind of Christ? If we're going to think like Christ, if we're going to act like Christ, if we're going to communicate like Christ, if we're going to react like Christ, what does it look like? It looks like this verse. Making yourself of no reputation, taking upon you the form of a servant, humbling yourself and becoming obedient. These verses give us a glimpse into the mind of Christ. Under the humility of Christ this morning, we see that he humbly renounced his position. He humbly renounced his position. The very first phrase, and we, we mentioned it, takes us back to the deity of Christ. And if you remember John chapter 1, there's three verses in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Who was this Word? Who was it? Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we observed His glory. The glory is the, as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, Jesus Christ. The deity that Jesus Christ claimed, we see it again here in Philippians chapter 2. Isn't it good when we can connect passages of Scripture with theological truths? Hey, we learned about Jesus claiming to be God in, in John, and now we're learning about Jesus claiming to be God in Philippians, and we're able to, to, to look at those Scripture together now and see those things working together. But he humbly renounced his position. Jesus was and is God, and he always has been, and he always will be, but he was willing to be made as a man. He was willing to be made in the likeness of men. Jesus, make no mistake about it, is 100% God, but he was 100% man when he was here on this earth. And this has been a source of debate throughout the centuries, and 
Scholars have claimed that Jesus was simply a a good man or a a worthy, noble prophet or a great example for one to live by. And there's many even false uh, religions that would claim those positive things about Jesus. But Jesus is much more than a good man. He's much more than a worthy prophet. He's much more than a great example. Jesus is God. An early debate resulted back in the, back hundreds of years ago, in a creed that was declared regarding this very thing about Christ. This creed simply says this, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. I mean, that's a statement right there about Jesus. That's who we believe in. That's what this is teaching us theologically, that a holy God would renounce his position to take on human flesh, the incarnation of Christ, we call that. That's unbelievable. That a holy God would take on human flesh, that's humility. Hey, that a holy God would take on human flesh, that's the mind of Christ. A humble mind. So he he humbly renounced his position, but then he humbly gave his life on the cross. I imagine the conversation in, in heaven could have gone, so, Father, you want me to go to earth? You want me to take on all of the human attributes that a human has? Temptation, sickness, pain, Cold weather, hot weather, no AC back in the day, man, in the Middle East. You want me to take on all of the limitations of a human? Okay. And then you want me to go and you want me to preach salvation to just the Jews? Okay, no, but you also want to extend that to non-Jews. Okay, I think I could do that. You know, my own people will probably accept me. Okay, that makes sense. But wait, how is this going to end? Oh, okay, so they're not going to accept me. Even my own people aren't going to accept me. Oh, I'm going to die? I think we mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Okay, I'm going to go in my sleep very peacefully, right? No, I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be brutally tortured. I'm going to be mocked. Keep in mind, God, so I'm going to be mocked by people that I could simply think and have them removed from this earth. I could just say, hey, angels, take care of it and have them removed. Okay, so they're going to reject me. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit upon me. They're going to beat me. And then they're going to crucify me as a criminal. He humbly gave his life. He humbly died on the cross. For us, his entire life was marked by humility. Jesus began his humble life with his birth in a stable, to his humble occupation of being a carpenter, to his humble lifestyle of traveling around with no home. If you know what, if you want to know what God would look like in the flesh, that's it. God would have been born uh, in a poor stable. He would have been a humble carpenter. He would have traveled around with no steady place to stay. He would have been marked with humility. If, if God were to show up in the flesh and walk through that back door back there, some of us would probably be uncomfortable. 
because he wouldn't have had a place to stay last night. He would have been traveling from somewhere. He may have been a little dirty. He may have been a, a little disheveled. His hair probably wasn't combed quite as nice as yours. He probably wasn't wearing quite as nice of clothes as you were because those things didn't matter to him. Probably make us a little uncomfortable. You know why, brother? He was humble. He was humble. The humility that Jesus showed, and there are many ways that I could try to communicate the humility of Christ, but I feel like the entire chapter of Isaiah chapter 53, if you want to turn there, if you have your Bible, Isaiah 53, it's going to be on the screens if not. But Isaiah 53 really shows us the extent of his humility. It says, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that, that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. That's Jesus. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. That's a lot this morning. That's heavy. But I challenge you this week. In addition to what you read in your, in your Bible reading. Take a look at Isaiah 53. Soak it in, sink it in, that this Jesus would die the death of a criminal on the cross. That he would endure the verbal and physical abuse that was given him on the road to Calvary. That he would look upon his accusers and look upon those that were killing him, that were murdering him, that, that were literally driving the stakes into his hands. That he would look upon them and that he would say, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. They know not what they do. Forgive them. Forgive them. That he would become 
sin on the cross. Not just pay for your sin, but that he would become your sin. I cannot explain that to you because I don't have the words in our language to tell you that a holy, righteous God in the form of Jesus Christ, who was perfect and sinless, became pride. He became adultery. He became envy. He became lust. He became disobedience. He became murder. He became every sin. He became sin on the cross. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He became sin on the cross. So much so that as he hung on that cross and became sin on that cross, God the Father had to turn his back on his own son. As Jesus hung on that cross and have God the Father turn his back because he couldn't look upon the sin. Humility. That's humbleness. That's humility. The mind of Christ looks like that. It looks just like that. To have someone turn their back on you is the ultimate form of disrespect. If we were carrying on a conversation and mid-sentence as you were talking, I simply turned my back. That's a extremely disrespectful that I couldn't even look at you. God did it not out of disrespect, but out of obligation. He couldn't look upon the sin. But that's the Jesus we serve. The one that became, you know that sin that we don't like to deal with and talk about, that sin that's deep down on the inside, that sin that we don't like anybody else to know about, that sin that, that's what he became on the cross. As a church, this is the Jesus that we need to know about theologically. We need to understand that. We need to have a foundation for our beliefs. And, and we, we strive to do that in many ways here. But this is also the Jesus that we need to emulate this morning. Can we think like him as a church? Can we humble ourselves like him as a church? Hey, can you think like him as an individual? Can you humble yourself like him as an individual? What would that look like in our day-to-day living and we're done? Humility would let someone else get the credit for something, even when you know you deserve the credit. Let's, let's get down here where the rubber meets the road. Humility says, I don't mind if someone else gets the credit, even though I know I deserve the credit. Humility will take the brunt of the punishment, even though you may not deserve that punishment. That's what humility looks like. Humility will look at the worldly successes of the day through the lens of eternity instead of through the lens of status or through the lens of bank account. We'll look at this world with eternity in view. Humility will simply see our homes that we live in as places to lay our head and enjoy meals together, not status symbols of our bank accounts. Let's get real. Let's get real. We want to emulate Christ. 
And, and, and Lord knows, I'm not, I'm not against nice homes. I am against us viewing our homes as status symbols. And God, God for, forgive me if I've ever done that. Look, I'm offering, the way that our church operates with our connect groups, man, I want, a, I want a nice big home open that I can host multiple people in. Man, I hope God gives us that. We got a nice big open apartment right now. Praise the Lord. But God forbid that it turns into my identity or it turns into my status. Humility takes the brunt of criticism for the benefit of the team. Ultimately, humility, as Jesus said, not my will, but thy will be done. Not what I want, but what you want. The late John Stott made this statement. At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, so no matter where you are in your Christian life, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. I mentioned this last week and I'll repeat it. Humility does not think less, does not mean to think less of yourself. It does not mean to mope around, not making eye contact with anybody and like, oh, that must be a humble person. That's not what humility is. Humility is having a proper view of God and all of his glory and all of his majesty. And seeing God for who he is, the creator of this world, the creator of every human being, God Almighty. And it's seeing us for who we were if we're saved. Sinners, condemned, sinning when we don't even try. I don't know about you, man. I'm like a professional sinner and I don't put any effort into it. Right? It's like I'm not, I'm not even practicing. I'm really good. Sinners, that's who we are. But true humility, Christ-like Christian humility, takes it that step further and completes the thought with the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. True humility says, I know who God is, I know who I was, and I know now who I am as a child of God. That's an heir to the throne. That's a, that's a child of the king. Hey, I'm in the family. True humility can walk around with confidence. Not arrogance, but confidence. A humble person will be able to shake your hand, look you in the eye, carry on a confident conversation with you. You know why? Because he understands God, who he was, and who he is. As a church family, Let's have the mind of Christ. That's a humble mind. Let's understand who God is. Hey, let's understand who we were. Man, before Jesus came in our lives. But you know what? Let's confidently, humbly, but confidently understand who we are in Christ. Hey, listen. I don't care where you are in life. I don't care how life has got you down. I don't care where you're struggling or how you're struggling. You're standing in Christ as a child. Man, you can lift your head high. Hey, you can walk out these doors today, get in your car, and face life. Hey, you know what? Life is worth living because of Jesus. 
This has been the preaching podcast from Keystone Church and Pastor Josh Cox. For more information about Keystone Church, visit keystonerdu.com. Please subscribe to hear future messages. Thank you.